listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Well, have you ever had a memory from years ago that just pops back into your head? We, all, we have that, right? It's funny how our memory works. That happened to me this week I, uh, as I was preparing this message. I remember a summer where I was doing an internship at a church in Florida, and I was with this pastor, and he got a phone call, and he said, David, there's a lady, she's not doing very well. We're going to go visit her right now, so hop in the car with me. We get in the car. It's a 10-minute drive. He says, hey, let's just pray. We're driving. We didn't really say anything. Just both of us silently prayed as we drove to this home. We get there. The front door of this house is wide open, so we just walk into the home, step into the front living room, and there is this woman that we were going to go visit sitting dead in her recliner. And this, this elderly lady who had just passed away moments before we walked in, her adult daughter was in the room, and the pastor I was with, without a hesitation, started quoting this verse that I'm going to put up on the screen for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We comforted and consoled the daughter, but that stuck with me. We as Christians have something who, pe- who people who don't know Christ, they simply don't have when it comes to death. Now, we're doing a series through the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we're in a sweet spot in this letter. Paul has has really been diving deep into personal application on how we can walk in love and grow in our love more and more. So we've talked about the gift of sex. We've talked about the workplace the last couple weeks. And now we're starting part one of a two-part message that I'm calling the attractive kind of crazy. The attractive kind of crazy. Now, I say that because whenever you start talking about the end of the world as we know it, talking about death, it can, it can get a little wild, right? I mean, you have the doomsayers, you have the survivalists with all their dry food ready to go. Like, this is one of those topics that can easily just kind of go out into left field pretty fast. Um, but here's what we're going to do this morning. It's the same thing we do every Sunday morning. We're going to take the word of God. We're going to simply open it up, find out what is the passage saying? What's the main truth of this message? I'm going to explain it, illustrate it, and then apply it to your life. And the topic today may be uncomfortable for some of us to talk about because who likes to talk about death? Who likes to talk about the end of the world? I mean, yeah, there's some crazy people who do, but not all of us like to talk about that, right? We don't always like to think about that normally. 
But the matter, this, this matter, the topic of the end times, even though it may sound wild, but we're, what we're about to read may sound very wild to you in a vacuum, it is a topic that is thoroughly discussed in every single letter in the New Testament. And we cannot afford to neglect it. As a matter of fact, even Christians tend to, at times, neglect the truth that we're going to see here in 1 Thessalonians 4. What I hear from a lot of people is, oh, you know, we just can't know for sure what's going to happen. There's a lot of different ways that you can interpret Revelation and the prophets. All I know for sure is that it's going to work out in the end. And I agree with all of that. I really do. But there is, at the same time, an imbalanced wave of Christianity that looks down on, turns their nose at, any believer who takes this topic seriously and does the due diligence to dive in and actually make a position. What do do you think the Bible says is going to happen? Now, we have to hold it lightly. It's not it's not a cardinal truth. It's not on the same par, obviously, as the gospel of Christ. It's, a, it's not a primary issue, but it's an issue that is all over the New Testament, that Jesus talks about, that Paul talks about, that the Apostle John talks about quite often. So we don't need to completely neglect it either. The end times for many Christians is one of those topics where it's, it's acceptable, it's cool just to not care that much. And I think that is a disservice to the text, and I think that's a disservice to your own spiritual life. So the question I have for you is, why is it so neglected? Why is it acceptable just to be casual and carefree when it comes to the end times? Do you care about the end times? Do you even know what you believe about the end times? Because here's what happens if you ignore it. If you say, ah, it's just so confusing, I don't know for sure, and you lower it beyond the secondary issue, and you lower it all the way down to this third-degree issue, what happens if you do that? I'll tell you what I think happens. I think Satan is thrilled. I think our enemy is happy. All right, they're not thinking about it. It's not on their mind anymore. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 24. Every prophet, not every prophet, but almost every prophet in the Old Testament, especially Daniel, had a lot to say about the end times. And not everything in Revelation is mysterious and cryptic either. And when we shy away from taking every part of the Bible seriously, our enemy is happy. He wins because he has you focused on the here and now and not what you could be if you were looking ahead to the end times. So I love studying the end times. And this sermon is a little different because we're here in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the primary passage on the rapture of the church. And I'm going to say a few things that uh, I'm not going to have time to back up with scripture because it's just too big of a subject, okay? And I do want to let you know, I want to preface this. If you disagree with me on this, that's okay. You can still come to church here, all right? I know for a fact there's some people who don't line up eye to eye with me on my view of the end times, and it is a secondary issue. We don't have to agree. 
We can have people in this church that hold different views to it, and that's he- I believe that's healthy. So whenever we have those membership meetings, I always bring this up and I let people know, hey, if you care about it and you're studying it, and as long as you're not going overboard with it and making it a primary issue, I'm fine with that. But that's great. I hold my position and you can hold yours. But this is fascinating to me, and I think it is fascinating to anyone who takes the time to actually get into it. So whatever you believe, here's what we all believe. Every single Orthodox Christian should believe this one. Jesus is coming back, right? So we can start there. Now, maybe that's as far as you want to go. But the Thessalonians had questions about it. And Paul had answers for them about it. So Paul takes it further than that. So we're going to take it farther than that today. And here's the outline in a nutshell. I'll go ahead and just give it to you right up front. Concerning the end of the world, we don't know when it's coming, but we do know that it's coming. So we live like it's coming. That's the message right there. That's what we're going to see today. And the amazing thing about this text is that when you understand and embrace the truth that we're about to read, you will be bold, you will be fearless in a way that you weren't before, and you will have a sense of confidence. You can walk into a room of a person who just died, and you can comfort someone with the hope, the living hope of Jesus Christ from Scripture. So follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. What I've said so far may sound crazy to you, but you're going to see that this confidence, this boldness, this fearlessness is an attractive kind of crazy that I think every single member of this church should have. Let's read the text, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so will we always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Does anyone remember the last game you ever played of sports in high school? Raise your hand if you remember this. Like your last high school athlete, maybe it's for you it's college because you're better than most of us in this room and you played, <laughs> played in college. I remember mine. I really do. Um, and if you, if you cared about it, if you trained for it, if you pre- prepared for it, you cared about the sport and your team, of course you remember, right? I still remember. It was my high school basketball game my senior year. We were in the state playoffs. And we were ahead at halftime. Okay, you can tell I, I care, right? I still remember this. Like, the other team made some adjustments at halftime. We did not. Their, their shooters got hot. They had three out in the wing. We stayed in our 2-3 zone defense for some reason. 
and they shredded us in the second half, and we lost, and it was it. It was over. But when you play your last game, there's something about that last game where you just want to leave it all on the court, right? Like, you know, this could be it. This could be it. I want to go out well. I want to finish strong. And there's a compliment. There's a phrase in sports. It's a really good compliment. I don't throw it around, around lightly. Maybe you've heard this before. But if you've ever seen someone who plays and you just say, they play every game like it's their last game. You know that kind of player is making memories on the court. They're making, they're making plays on the field. They're actually playing the game the way that will make a difference, right? In the same way, if you live every day of your life like it could be your last day, you are going to make a difference for eternity. You are going to affect people. You are going to love people. You are going to change the way people view God. And you are going to make a huge difference. You're going to be bold. You're going to be fearless. And that's where we're going with this topic that Paul brings up. Now, I'm preaching to myself here today as well. Because just like anyone, it can be very easy to fall asleep. Life gets hectic, life gets busy, life is hard, right? And we can get very caught up in what's in front of us, whether that's the current trial or whether that's the current amazing new thing, whether that's just having fun or an experience. It's so easy to get our eyes down here and not up there with Christ returning. And also, I do want to add as you live your life and you love people, like Paul's talking about, we are still human, right? We don't have our resurrected bodies yet. And we will fatigue and we get tired and we need rest. So the Christian life is not just some sprint to the finish line. What does Paul describe it as? A marathon, okay? So you do have to pace yourself. I don't want you to take away from this sermon, all right, I gotta go out there. And go 100 miles per hour for the next 37 straight days until I collapse. That's not the, the point that Paul is preaching in this text. But he does want you to look up and to look for Christ. That is the mindset. What Paul is saying is that we have to look to the end. And we have to live in preparation that the end is coming. Now, Capital E, end of the world, again, crazy topic, right? What I do like, uh, what I, I would like to point out is that uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, the end of the world as we know it, that's actually a biblical phrase. <laughs> because the end of the world cuts it short of the rest of the truth of the Bible. This earth is going to pass away. We preached, we did a series in, in Peter a few months ago, right? And we, we saw that. This world as we know it will most definitely come to an end. But that's not the end of the world because Christ is going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And if you know Christ, you will live forever on the new earth. Every soul will live forever, whether that's in, in a place of judgment because they've rebelled against God and they've rejected their creator or whether it's in paradise with him, 
Okay, so there is no real true end of the world period. It's the end of the world as we know it. And here's something that comes before the end of the world as we know it, or right at that time for, for those of us who are in the church. We have a lot to look forward to. The new earth, Jesus Christ, is the source of light in the new earth. We will live there with a resurrected body. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. Our Savior will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and we don't even know how that's going to work. But we do know that he's not going to just magically erase our memories because those tears are going to be there. We're going to know it. But the overwhelming truth of who he is and the hope of what we have in him is going to be so wonderful that somehow, some way, we are going to live in joy and peace for eternity, no matter what happened in this life. So that's what we have to look forward to. But the Thessalonians had a question. And their question was, what about our loved ones who are now dead? Those who are fallen asleep, as Paul calls it. What about them? How is it going to work out for them? Are they going to miss out? Because the Thessalonians were waiting for Jesus Christ's return. And in Acts 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven and he left his disciples staring up into the sky, do you remember what he said? Go ahead and turn there if you don't remember. Go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to read just a few verses in Acts chapter 1. This is Jesus at the Mount of Olives. He ascends into heaven, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and the cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So the church is waiting for that. Thessalonians were waiting for that. We are waiting for that. To usher in a new kingdom, an eternal kingdom. But what we just read Paul say here is a little bit more. There's a little bit extra. It's just slightly different. It's not, it's not different. It's just, I would say, it's more. More information. And what Paul teaches the church is that before Jesus Christ comes back to earth for the final time, which we can read about in Revelation 19, he is going to come to the clouds and call up the Christians who are alive. That's what we just read in 1 Thessalonians 4. And those are different things. I told you that in a vacuum, this sounds wild. Did you hear what I just said? Because people who don't know Christ, they hear that and they think we're nuts. Some of us Christians have heard that our whole lives so much that it just kind of goes in one ear out the other. We don't even realize what that sounds like. Jesus Christ is coming to the clouds and we will rise up to meet him in the air. 
That sounds a little different than what we read in Revelation 19. And I would ask you to turn to Revelation 19 because this is the final return of Christ. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. I want to read those verses for you as well. And I think that's about as far as we're going to bounce around. I told you, you can, you can make your own timeline. But Revelation 19, 11 through 16, listen to this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Does that sound like coming into the clouds to bring up the Christians in 1 Thessalonians? It's a lot different, right? He's coming for war here. He's coming for judgment this time. His eyes are like a flame of fire, verse 12, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I'll stop right there. We could go on all day in Revelation, but I'll just stop it right there. Maybe you can read that later on today, this week sometime. Before Revelation 19, there is obviously... 18 other chapters in Revelation that describe the tribulation period. This is a period where God is restoring his original chosen people, the Jews. And this is the time of Jacob's trouble that is, that is prophesied in Jeremiah 30, where God sends his two witnesses. And then through those two witnesses, the 144,000 Jews accept Christ as their true Messiah, and they go to the four corners of the earth preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the tribulation period, the Jews come to Jesus Christ. Everything comes full circle. God's original chosen people, he restores them, and he makes them his own once and for all. And throughout all of that, in Revelation, the church is nowhere to be found during the tribulation period. Because the tribulation, I believe, is not for the church, it's for the Jews. Now, again, I know some of you disagree with me on that, but we can still be friends. It's okay. It really is. I know you, this is probably not your favorite sermon. <laughs> That's as far as I'm going to go on all that today. But there are chapters upon chapters that you can reference, that you can look into, you can study, and you can, you can piece it all together. And yes, you can make a timeline if you want. I know that's like cringe for some of you, but you can do that, and it's okay. So if you take the Bible historically, grammatically, and literally, if you interpret it that way, historical, grammatical, literal approach. So that means you're taking into account what kind, of, what kind of writing this is, right? What kind of genre of literature is this in the style? You can still stay consistent and not block out large portions of the Bible and, and you can, without the whole classification of, oh, this just isn't for me. 
I don't understand it. It's just figurative. It's just something we can't really know about. You don't have to play that card. There are a lot of figurative portions of Scripture, but not everything in Revelation is all figurative, not even close. And this passage today is certainly not figurative. So let's go back to what Paul has to say right here. The first point is assumed. Number one today, we don't know when it's coming. We don't know when. We're going to see more of this next week in chapter 5. Paul repeats everything that Jesus said in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 26 is a really good verse to, to memorize. Don't ever forget this verse, okay? But concerning that day, this is Jesus speaking, the hour and the day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. So we don't know and we can't know. It's pointless to try to guess. And there's a lot of good men who have like kind of gone off their own path and tried to guess. Like it happens. Don't do that. Don't listen to that. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you remember this. I don't know. I don't remember this. I read about it. But back in 1988, there was a man who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1988. Anybody ever read that book? Okay. Well, we're still here, right? (laughs) The same guy wrote another book in 1989 called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Returning in 1989. I don't think he sold as many copies the next year. I I don't know for sure, though. I mean, it was the 80s. Who knows? (laughs) Don't try to guess. You didn't just miss one one of those clues, okay? We don't know. And... uh, It's very important to remember this. I have to bring this up every time I talk to my boys about this. Actually, we were driving to school this week, and we were talking about that that chemical spill in Ohio, and and just talking about some of the things going on in the world, right? And and Beckham's like, oh, wow, Dad, like, Jesus could be coming back today. I was like, I know. He's like, I really think Jesus is going to come back this year. It's like, you could be right. We We have to look for it. We should expect it. At the same time, we just, we don't don't know. Because it feels like it right now, but it felt like that in the year 1000 AD. It felt like that. And then you had the Middle Ages. It was a really dark time, period of time, right? God sent a revival through the Reformation, okay? Things turned around. I mean, if you look through every single century, people thought, this is it. The Lord is returning. They thought that in the 1700s and the 1800s. They thought it in the year 2000. Some people had their barley green and their, and their, and their oats and their wheat stored up because all the, if all the computers are going to go crash, then of course the end of the world is happening, right? <laughs> the Mayan calendar in 2012, people are always expecting some, some end of the world. This could be it. The truth is we don't know, but we need to be expecting it. It is coming. It could be any day now, but we still have to live today as if he's called us and we have people to love and there's work to do. There's work to be done. This is where it's very important to remember what Peter says. And I did preach on this passage a few months ago, but it bears repeating. 2 Peter 3, verse 8. And if you want to turn to it, go ahead. I, I, I lied. I had one other verse to you, for you to turn to. 
But 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord is one day, and one day is a thousand years. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done thereon on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Did you catch what Peter said there? One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The reason time goes on and he has not returned is because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all reach repentance. God desires more and more people to meet him, to know him, to find him, and to live with him for eternity. And the longer time goes on, the more people we will be celebrating with and worshiping with in eternity. I can't wait for that. And I think that's amazing that God has allowed us to live. I'm, I'm glad he didn't come back in the, in the 1800s, <laughs> okay? And if he tarries, that's great too. But we don't know when he's coming. Now, I've left you hanging on these verses in 1 Thessalonians 4 because these verses are different than Revelation 19. And 1 Thessalonians 4 is something that happens before the end of the world. It's the second coming of Christ, also referred to as the rapture. We don't know when it's coming, but point number two, we do know that it's coming. Look again how Paul describes this in verse 15. I'm going to turn back to 1 Thessalonians myself. Verse 15, for this we declare to you, by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So did we follow that order? We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Their question to Paul was about our friends who passed away, our loved ones who were gone. And Paul is saying, you want to know what happens to them? Well, they're headed up first. They're coming out of the ground to meet the Lord in the clouds. And then you who are alive and remain will follow them up to the clouds. They're not going to miss out. Well, the only thing they're missing out on is the current pain and suffering that, that we all face in this incursed world. They're missing that. They're not going to miss the day of the Lord. And again, just step back and think about what that is, what, what I just said it's pretty sci-fi, scary, slash crazy, wild, right? But that's what the Bible reveals. The dead in Christ will rise first. And I don't know how, how much more plainly Paul could say that and just spell it out. This is happening. And if you believe the Bible, you have to believe this. We, we believe in miracles, right? We believe in the supernatural. We believe all that. Well, here you go. We're going to meet him in the clouds. That's gonna, I, I, can't, I just can't imagine how they're going to explain that away. The people who are, not, who are not going up into the clouds and they're staying here on gravity, right? What are they going to say? 
Is it going to be the aliens that took people away? I don't know what they're going to say. There's a lot of assumptions you could make. That's a topic for another day. But if you laugh and think this is bonkers, I'm sorry. As a Christian, I believe it. And it gives me hope and confidence. It gives me freedom from the rat race in this world. Because I'm not living for this present life in this world. I enjoy it. It's a gift of God. There's a lot of amazing things that I love about life in this present earth. And you know what? That just means I will enjoy the new earth even more. We all will. It gives us boldness and it removes the fear of death. How does it do that? It's because of who our faith is in. That's why we're fearless when it comes to death. Jesus Christ has done this before. Did you notice I skipped a verse there when we went back through this the second time? I skipped verse 14, if you caught it. Here it is on the screen again. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We have hope. We have a confident assurance that this is going to happen because Jesus has already died and risen. We know he can do it. And he's going to do it for you too if you trust him, if you confess your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. He's going to do the same for all of his children. And yes, most unbelievers think our faith is childish, immature, wishful thinking. They, they think that because they are in darkness and they cannot see the light, the truth. Some of you may know the name Ricky Gervais. He's a funny man, very funny man. He's also an atheist. He can make you laugh, but he doesn't believe in God. He doesn't know Christ. He's in an old movie called The Invention of Lying. And it's a fictional movie set in a world where no one has ever lied. And the reason I bring this up is because in that movie, you really see the, the side of the way the, the world looks at this, this end times topic. In that movie, to console someone who he wants to, he wants to lighten, lighten the load of dealing with death, he has, suddenly has the ability to lie, and so he makes up the first lie. And the first lie in this fictional movie is the lie of the afterlife. And the rest of the movie is just making fun of Christianity and our faith, really. But if you look at it from the world's perspective... You see, they look at our faith in the second coming of Christ as just wishful thinking. Oh, that consoles you. Oh, that makes you feel better. Oh, yeah, good for you. Pat, pat you on the back. Pat you on the head. Good for you. That'll make you feel better. They're completely missing it. Unbelievers look at this. They shake their head, and they think our faith is a coping mechanism. Something to help you get along and move on. Listen, our faith does not rest on wishful thinking. What does our faith rest on? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why we believe this. I don't believe this because it's going to make me feel better. I believe that I will rise again one day because Jesus rose again one day. And that is 
historical. It changed the world. It turned the world upside down. You cannot explain the New Testament church that's here 2,000 years later without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Why would all these disciples give their lives for something that they knew was a lie, for wishful thinking? Don't you think one of them would have cracked? How could we have the church 2,000 plus years later still growing, still expanding, still changing people's lives if it was all based off of a religious wishful thought that makes me feel better about myself? There are some people who think that way. They don't know Christ. They don't know the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is alive and there's no other way to explain Christianity. That's the core of Paul's point here. Even if you disagree with me on the rapture, I know you don't disagree with me here. At least I hope not. If you disagree with this, like I'm going to pray that you will accept it and believe it one day. Because this is the biggest decision you'll ever make. Did Jesus Christ raise from the dead or did he stay dead? If he stayed dead, we don't have a faith. We don't have a religion. We have nothing. We have no hope. But because Jesus Christ rose, I believe I will one day rise to be with him. Hope in the New Testament is the Greek word elpis. It means confident expectation. It's not, I hope I have a good lunch after the service today. It's a, I believe this is going to happen. It's a confident expectation. So we approach death not with fear or intimidation, but with confidence. It's going to be so much better. It really is. Now, at the same time, I need to add here, you can grieve. Don't let anyone ever tell you you can't grieve because when a loved one passes away and we're going to miss them, whether that's temporarily or whether that's for eternity, that's tough. And, and grief is a very important thing. Never let anyone tell you that it's not, not a valuable, necessary thing. So we can grieve. And at the same time, we have hope. Because Jesus loves us. Jesus came for us. He already came once. He's coming again. And you know what? Just for good measure, he's coming a third time to really clean everything up, to, to, to judge evil, to judge wickedness. We can't fix all the wrongs in this, in this life. There are things that happen. There are people who pass away unjustly. There are horrible tragedies that happen in this sin-cursed, fallen, broken world. And I know this is a heavy topic. Some of us in this room have lost loved ones, and, it, and it's just there's no, there's no explanation for it. How did that have to happen now? Why did it have to happen that way? The injustice of it. I don't have an answer for you on that. The only thing I can point you to is God is just. He loves you. And he will restore everything that is broken. Every injustice that has ever happened in this world will be made right, not by us, not by us taking it into our own hands. It will be made right in the day of the Lord because God is love, God is just, and he will not let evil go unpunished. Another nice thing about the hope that we have as Christians is our evil that we've done 
it's already been accounted for. It's already been punished by Jesus Christ on the cross. He took our sin, the weight of our shame and our guilt, he took it upon himself and he bled and died for it. So if you know Christ, what did we sing about today? We have freedom, right? We have joy. We have the the chains are released. They're gone. Because Jesus took our punishment. He took the blame that we deserved upon himself. He died for it. And he rose again. And we have hope. John Wesley, when he first came to America in the 1700s, you may have heard the name, wrote a lot of hymns, preached a lot. A lot of you may not know that when he first came to America, he wasn't even a Christian. <laughs> he, was a, he was trying to do ministry. He was trying to preach, but he didn't know the gospel. It's kind of hard to do that if, if you put two and two together. It really is tough. He was very frustrated with his ministry. It didn't go very well. But he didn't understand grace, grace and faith. Faith by, by grace alone. Not of works, lest any man should boast. He didn't get that until later. But when he, there was this one trip where he was coming over to America and there was a terrible storm. Everybody was losing their head, freaking out. It looks like this ship is going to capsize. John Wesley himself was scared to death. And he saw a group of Moravian Christians on this ship praying and singing in peace and harmony. They had no fear. They were ready to go home. So they're singing with joy. Some people looked at them like, y'all are crazy. (laughs) John Wesley looked at them as like, they have something I don't have. That's an attractive kind of crazy. How can they be so confident in the face of death? You can read about this in his journals. He wrote how perplexed perplexed he was, how, how wild it looked to them. It sounded crazy. But they had hope in Jesus. So it was an attractive kind of crazy. We have hope because Jesus is alive. We have a living hope. And look again what he's going to do. Verse 17. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds. And the Greek word there for caught up is the word harpazo. It means to snatch up. It's like plucking a fish out of the water. It's where the Greek originally originates, originally comes from. This is the word that we get the theological concept of the rapture from right here. This is where it is in the New Testament. We don't know when it's coming, but we do know that it's coming. So point number three, we live like it's coming. Paul gives us hope by pointing us to this truth. Jesus is coming again, and he's coming for you. He's coming for you and for me. Play every game like it's your last. You do that, and you will make memories. You'll be special out there. You live every day like Jesus is coming. It could be today. It may be tomorrow. I don't know for sure, but I know it could happen at any time. You're going to love people. You're going to speak the truth, and you are going to make an impact in the lives of the people that you rub shoulders with every single day. That's part one. 
Paul's going to keep talking about this in, in, in chapter 5. And we're going to learn more. And uh, at some point this week, I'll, I'm going to release one of our, our podcast episodes just talking about the end times a little bit more. But I really do believe this is a healthy topic to, to study and to discover. This is not one of those topics to sleep on. It's a topic to embrace. Sure, you may sound crazy, but when your living hope inspires you to love boldly and to live fearlessly, that's when you are going to attract people to your Savior. They're going to say, wow, they have something. They think a way. They, they live a way that is fearless and boldness, and I w- bold, and I wish I had that. Go ahead and stand up with me, church. The takeaway from this message is simply this. Are you living like he's coming? That's all Paul is asking you to do. We will be with him forever. I cannot wait for that day. Until he comes, let's live every day we have for him and love those who he loves. Love them like he loved us. about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.